0: Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd and today we'll take a look at developments in Egypt and Khurasan in the last decade of the 9th century. Both the Tulunids and Safarids, respective masters of these realms, were humbled during Al-Mu'tadid's glorious reign. There was no Abbasid belligerence involved. The dynasts actually enjoyed relatively warm relations with the caliph, though I guess not warm enough for him to help them out when they tripped up. After we're done describing their woes, we'll turn our attention back to the capital to discuss some of al-Mu'talid's policies and reflect on his style of leadership. Episode 79 – Fortune Favors the Brute It's incredible how sharp a corner the caliphate turned between the reigns of al-Mu'tamid and his nephew al mutadid I realize 20 years might seem like a long time, but it's hard to fathom how such a transformation could have been brought about at all. In the mid-870s, the Abbasids seemed besieged by existential crises on multiple fronts. For the next decade, They fought an uphill battle against the rebellion in Iraq, and although they made progress and ultimately emerged victorious, their survival was far from assured. Things could have gone awry at any point, even towards the very end, like when Talha was gravely wounded in battle. It wasn't smooth sailing after they triumphed in Basra either. In the last decade of Al-Mu'tamid's reign, from 882 to 892, the Abbasids lost most of their wars. Talha's son failed to retake Egypt from Khumaruya ibn Tulun, while his father lost against first the Safarids, then the Dulafids. Furthermore, the Caliphate struggled in other dimensions as well, with its treasuries perennially empty and its governors increasingly insubordinate. Now, contrast all this to the ease with which al mutadid reconquered Mesopotamia and western Iran. The new administration enjoyed far more than just military strength. It was also united and eventually prosperous. I couldn't make sense of this shift at first, thinking perhaps it was a consequence of historical propaganda or bias in our sources. Another pet theory was the pickle jar hypothesis that all the hard work had been done by Talha only for his son to pop the loosened lid off and reap the fruits of his labor. While there is something to that, I've realized that the shift had more to do with how the caliphate was perceived. In the 880s, after literal decades of disarray, the Abbasid caliphate looked like it was on the brink of collapse. The chaos around it was the birth of new movements trying to preemptively fill the void it would leave. They were in a very real sense predicated on the Caliphate's demise. After their dynasty survived the Zenj Rebellion and the Safarids, everyone began to realize that the Abbasids were here to stay. Their foes tested them further for another decade, but there was no escaping the fact of Abbasid survival. I think this is what happened, and we sort of saw it in action with the Shaibanis and Dulafids last time. The two modest statelets bordering the caliphate submitted willingly after they realized they had no hope of holding up against a resurgent state. We'll see something similar with the Safarids and Tulunids today, and both dynasties will reveal themselves to be little more than paper tigers when things started to go wrong. Perhaps they could have held it all together under different circumstances. But with the caliphate back on the rise, their political projects were under a lot more pressure than before. We'll begin our discussion in Greater Khorasan, mainly because our sources have less to say about the distant province. Amr ibn Layth al Safar had done a good job growing his realm and he maintained a positive relationship with the Abbasids. The main threat to the Safarids came from Rafi' ibn Harthama, an ex-Tahirid commander who disrupted their activities in Khurasan. A gifted leader, Rafi' was more an adventurer than a statesman, and while his loyalties shifted over time, he always maintained an anti Safarid stance. After the caliphate made peace with the Safarids, he switched from the Abbasid side over to the Zaydis, though we don't find a lot to suggest that this new bond was especially deep. The Zaydis were an independent Shia power in Tabaristan, and it doesn't seem like Rafi'a adopted their creed nor led their men in battle. Relying on his own loyal troops and local allies, he held the ex-Tahirid capital of Nisapur for several years, and at his height, he could claim a significant chunk of greater Khurasan. It wasn't until 894 that Amr al-Saffar managed to conquer Nisapur. He spent some time there, maybe around a year, but as soon as he left, Rafa returned and reclaimed the city. This seems to have been the Safarid plan all along, because Amr marched his army right back and laid siege to Nisapur looking to put an end to the rebel for good. Rafir managed to escape, but the Safarids chased him to Tus, a city about a hundred miles east, and defeated him there. Rafir fled again, this time all the way to Khwarezm, about a thousand kilometers north. The Safarids never gave up the chase, though, and they finally captured him two years later in 896, and forwarded his severed head to Amr. A thousand kilometers was a conservative estimate, by the way. Khwarizm is a vast region, split between modern Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, and we're not told exactly where Rafi' met his end. Two years later, in 898, Amr wrote to al Muqtadid requesting he be granted dominion over the last bit of the east still out of his jurisdiction, the lands beyond the Amuldaria, Transoxiana in Latin, al Nahr in Arabic. These were the domain of the Samanids, who had first been assigned as governors early in al Ma'mun's reign, almost eight decades back. They worked well with the Tahirids who kept the competent Samanids in power throughout their time in charge of Greater Khorasan. Despite this positive legacy, their link to the caliphate had been severed after the fall of the Tahirids. Al-Mu'tadid really didn't have much of a reason to care about them, so he gave Amr the go-ahead. For his blessing, the caliph was thanked with a tidy sum of four million silver coins, twenty horses with jeweled accessories, and 150 pack-mules laden with other gifts. It's been a while since we've seen wealth flow to the Abbasids, so that's nice. But what's more noteworthy is that the Safarids even bothered to ask before invading the Samanids. This is the opposite of Yaqub al-Safar's act-first-apologize-later approach, a shift wholly attributable to the Abbasid resurgence. Amr's generosity suggests he was confident of victory over his smaller adversary. Not to look a caravan of gift horses in the mouth, but this was peanuts compared to how much money he had. Our sources quote a letter from Ismail ibn Saman, telling Amr that there was no reason for a ruler bestowed with such a vast and rich domain to covet the humble area under Samanid rule. The Safarid didn't bother with the response at first. But when another letter came, warning him of how difficult crossing Balch's river with an army would be, Amr replied saying that if he pleased, he could plug the watercourse by dumping a fraction of his enormous wealth into it. Having ignored all appeals for peace, the Safarids prepared for a campaign into Transoxiana in the year 900. Instead of sheltering in his capital of Samarkand, Ismail ibn Saman personally led his allies into war. Amr's first target had to be Belch because it was the nearest Samanid city. The river to its west wasn't the Amul Daria, but it still presented an obstacle to military operations. Ismail used his understanding of the city's strengths and weaknesses to devastating advantage. Before the Zaffarids got there, Ismail crossed the river with his army and kept it out of sight. Amr's forces took Belch without a fight, only to find themselves completely trapped after Ismail encircled them and secured the only crossing. Now it was Amr's turn to beg for parley. But his pleas fell on deaf ears. His large army couldn't sustain itself in Belch for very long, and the Safarids were forced to beat a desperate retreat back west. Many of them died, and Amr was captured by the Samanids. Ismail gave him a surprisingly merciful choice. Amr could either stay as his guest-slash-hostage, or be sent back to the Abbasids in chains. Amr chose the latter, and upon his arrival in Baghdad, he was promptly thrown into a dungeon. Although the Safarids had maintained a good relationship with the Caliphate in recent years, Al-Mu'tadid found no sense in restoring Amr to power. We can only speculate about his thinking, but there were clear advantages to having the Safarids taken down a peg. The Abbasids had long sought to retake the rich province of Fars from them, and they managed to reoccupy it for a few years before it reverted to Safarid control. Although they had lost much of greater Khurasan, the dynasty endured and maintained real authority over the region between Faris and their home of Sistan. The Safarids imploded all on their own, and al-Mu'tadid profited without having to make much of an intervention. Luckily for him, another one of his foes also managed to get caught up in this mess. The Zaydis of Tabaristan Figured that with Amr and the Rafi' gone, there was nobody around to challenge their expansion into Khorasan. In the year 900, their leader, the Hashemite Muhammad ibn Zayd, planned to take the mountain province of Jurjan on the southeastern shore of the Caspian, then stroll into Nishapur. Jurjan may have asked for Samanid assistance because Ismail wrote to the Zaydis, warning them not to encroach where they did not belong. They ignored the Samanid threat and met their armies outside Jurjan, where they suffered a terrible defeat. Muhammad was mortally injured in that battle, and his son was taken prisoner. The Samanids didn't just bring the Zaidi dynasty to an abrupt end, but they went on to become rulers of Tabaristan a few years down the line. Al-Mu'tadid was thrilled at these developments, and several accounts relay his admiration for Ismail's battlefield tactics. The caliph went so far as to send 3 million gold dinar to be distributed to the Samanid troops for their triumph over the Safarids, and he invested the dynasty with Khorasan, Rai, and Sistan. Samanid armies will soon expand in all directions, into Tukharistan, Ushrusana, Khwarizm, Tabaristan, and beyond. This dynasty was even more dominant in the East than the Tahirids had been, and its embrace of Persian language and culture meant that the local population identified with them and did not view them as Abbasid prefects. They will rule the East for more than a century, until they were overthrown by their own armies. Okay, now let's turn to the Tulunids in the West. Their relationship with the Abbasids started out great. Khumaruya, which is how I think his name was pronounced in Arabic, sent Al-Mu'tadid a long list of treasures to congratulate him for his ascension including jewels, tapestries, fancy silver lances, and even a giraffe. Oh, and also his daughter's hand in marriage. Umaruya, proposed his daughter be wed to Al-Mu'tadid's son, but the caliph said he'd marry her himself, a proposition which deeply honored the Tulunid leader. I wonder how the bride felt about this, switch, but unfortunately her opinion did not make it into the historical record. I hate to waste time on stuff that isn't relevant to our narrative, but I feel I have to tell you about the ridiculous expense that went into sending Khumaruya's daughter, Qatr Arabic for dewdrop, to her new home. Now Khumaruya was infamously prodigal. He lived lavishly, gifted generously, and had his very own pool of mercury. I'm not sure if that last one's expensive at all. I just thought it was cool. Apparently he used it as a cure for insomnia. But to get back to Qatr al journey, Khumaruya felt his daughter was too pure to be sullied by sleeping alfresco, so he ordered over a dozen palaces be built between Cairo and Baghdad so that she could sleep in one every night. The bed she was carried on had over 30 kilograms of gold. On the day she arrived, the residents of Baghdad were instructed to stay away from the Tigris, and barriers were erected so the people couldn't even glimpse its shores as four boats made their way to meet her entourage. They carried her upriver to Musul, where al-Mu'tadid was staying, sometime in 895. The father of the bride didn't have very long to reflect on the marital extravaganza he'd arranged. In early 896, shocking news came from Damascus. Khumaruya had been slain in his bed by one of his personal servants. Al-Tabari provides absolutely no details on this murder, but while al-Mas'udi has more to say, it doesn't make much sense and quickly gets weird. Later sources sometimes allege an illicit affair or a love triangle, but there's nothing to back one theory over another. The perpetrators were punished, and Khumaruya's son, Jaish, became the new ruler. Alarmingly, he was only 14 years old. Only a few months later, a handful of emaciated senior Turkish commanders showed up at the gates of Baghdad begging for sanctuary. When the caliph granted them an audience, they told him how they'd plotted to replace Jaish with a more qualified candidate, only to be discovered. They had to immediately flee the whole way from Egypt without having made any preparations, a journey that cost many of them their lives. Less than ten months into his reign, Jaish's troops turned on him. They killed the youth and his mother, pillaged their estate, and even destroyed a good chunk of the capital. When they were done with their rampage, they appointed his younger brother, eight-year-old Harun as the new Tulunid dynasty. We don't have a lot of solid material on the motivation for all this, just a few lines about how Ja'ish's senior advisors were deeply unpopular. I think it's obvious what's going on, though. Anarchy was the only possible conclusion for Ibn Tulun's dynasty. Remember, his armies were modeled after the ones he knew as a soldier of the caliphate. They were comprised entirely of troops with no relation to the land and people they fought for, only tied to the state through the person of the ruler. We saw how that had worked out for Samarra. As soon as the Abbasid Caliph ceased to be a respected figure, the armies realized they were the true power in the land. The Tulunids were doomed from the start because they had no untouchable symbol or personage to unify and control ambitious commanders. What followed was a now familiar pattern of military infighting for control of the state and its riches. Ahmad ibn Tulun earned his place in charge, and the army he left behind had to rally around Khumaruya in the face of the Abbasid invasion following his father's death. It had no reason to obey youngsters like Jaish or Harun, however. The military leadership used them as puppets to push for their own interests instead. Tarsus was the first casualty of the turmoil in Egypt. Since the city was at the Byzantine frontier and was the launchpad of the caliphate's raids into the empire, sound governance was literally a matter of life and death. So just a few months after Harun's ascension... Following some political turbulence, Tarsus asked al-Mu'tadid to appoint its next governor. The year after that, the Tulunids reached out to the Abbasids and requested that the caliph publicly recognize Harun. This is when al-Mu'tadid squeezed them hard, saying he would only acknowledge their jurisdiction over Egypt and the Levant, but none of the lands bordering the Byzantine Empire. Not just that, he also increased their annual tax by a whopping 50%, from 300,000 to 450,000 gold dinar. The Tulunids had no choice but to accept, and the Abbasid caliph scored another of his effortless triumphs. We can find several instances of Abbasid strengths passively undermining the neighboring dynasty in the Tulunid example. The lavish spending to build ties with the caliphate was unnecessary, but establishing a bond with the caliph was extremely important to the unanchored dynasty. Khumarouya was wise to prioritize it, even if he didn't quite manage to translate it into inherent legitimacy for his house. Another consequential instance was the arrival of the Turkish commanders in Iraq. They found a home with the Abbasid armies, and they would go on to help them retake all of Tulunid territory down the line. Finally, the Tulunid faction and power looked to the caliphate to bestow it with a kind of legitimacy, and they were ready to accept any terms the caliph offered. Al-Mu'tadid's support was not in good faith, however, and he clandestinely meddled in Egyptian politics to destabilize the volatile situation further. Things just kept working out to al mutadids advantage. It's remarkable. I'll post a map on the episode's page of what the realm looked like by the time he was done with it, on thecaliphs.com. By the end of his reign, Egypt and Khurasan were no longer serious rivals to Iraq, and the Abbasids were on an unstoppable run. A lot of it was luck and absolutely nothing to do with the caliph but it took a shrewd politician like al-Mu'tadud to fully capitalize on such circumstances. He should absolutely be recognized for the part he played, although our sources tend to give him a little too much credit at times. Some make him out to be a master manipulator, claiming he set the Samanids and Safarids against one another, knowing full well what would happen. It's not particularly believable but it tracks with the rest of the fonding testimony we find about this caliph. This seems like a good point to reflect on what else we know about al-Mu'tadid as a ruler. He comes off pretty spotless in our histories, and it's hard not to feel the record's been somewhat sanitized. But even through all that censorship, we find several accounts alluding to his brutality. One narration even seems to have been designed to explain these charges away. It says that Al Mu'tadid asked an official to give him an example of a time he treated anyone with undue violence. After some hesitation, the man said he remembered when the caliph ordered the brutal execution of three vagabonds for stealing. Al Mu'tadid said he recalled the incident as well, but that there was another side to the story. He'd secretly let the thieves off with a warning, then intentionally displayed three mutilated corpses to the people to scare them straight. And wouldn't you know it, nobody ever stole again. That graceless bit of propaganda raises a lot more concerns than it tries to address. Al Mas'udi's history contains far more damning material. He calls Al Mu'tadid a bloodletter who enjoyed disfiguring his victims, then describes some of the Caliph's favorite ways of putting people to death. He liked burying people alive, but with their lower halves above the ground, so he could watch them thrash about as they suffocated. Another method was even more gruesome. A man's nose, ears, and mouth were sealed. Then he was pumped full of air until he ballooned, only to be dangled naked from some roof and shot at with arrows until he burst like some grisly piñata. It was downright revolting to read about. So there was clearly something terribly wrong with al-Muqtadid, but luckily for the caliphate, he was a high-functioning sociopath. It really does seem like his subjects enjoyed a prosperous few years, because the main internal themes we come across are wealth and reconstruction. The broad headline is that the caliph did so well, his state went from bankrupt to surplus, and he spent vast amounts restoring Baghdad to its former glory. These will be the last two subjects we focus on today before wrapping up. We are told Al-Mu'tadid amended the tax schedule so revenue was collected during times of harvest. The oral testimony in our sources isn't well suited to topics like this, however, so this next bit is my own corrective supplement. See, now that the caliphate was recovering, serious efforts were being made to fix the treasury. And while it's true that the state's finances were improving, much of the gains came from reconquests. General decline was still a problem. Many episodes ago, we described the real cost of the anarchy, the disastrous long term consequences it had for Iraq's agricultural output. Despite the prosperity we hear about during al Mu'tadid's reign, very little went towards rehabilitating the agricultural infrastructure that had once enabled Iraq to support its population. The administration's reliance on merchant families, like the Banu Furat and Banu Jarrah, to manage the state's taxation meant that tax farming was used more widely than ever before, a system that does nothing to incentivize long-term thinking. Our sources love to praise Al-Mu'tadid for the positive interventions he made in this sphere. I just want to make sure that nobody hears reforms and surplus and thinks that everything had finally been resolved. This caliph comes off like a financial genius because he maintained a full purse when those before him struggled. But a leader with a keener sense for statecraft would have invested in the future far more judiciously. Al-Mu'tadid was a builder, not a bureaucrat, and since constructing large, beautiful structures is much more of a crowd-pleaser than digging canals, Our Baghdadi histories love him for it. You may have noticed that we haven't really mentioned Samarra since Al-Mu'tamid passed away. But if not, then let me tell you, it's official. Baghdad was the Abbasid capital once again. Much of the material for the caliph's fancy new buildings came from stripping down structures in Samarra. So the ex-capital was sort of being reabsorbed. Although it was abandoned just 60 years after it had been founded, Samarra maintained the prestige of being the resting place for several Abbasid caliphs and two Shia imams. The Shia are actually the one subject I've been holding back from you, but I won't be able to keep it up much longer. I just wanted to hold off the discussion until I had enough material to fill a whole episode. Things are about to get heated, though, not between the caliphate and the Shia per se, but with a weird offshoot of theirs dubbed the Qaramita, or Karmatians. We won't get into it now, but they were first mentioned in our sources in the early 890s, towards the end of al-Mu'tamid's reign. Their movement evolved greatly throughout al-Mu'tamid's decade in charge, and they will be a real problem for his successors. The Qaramita possessed a strange hybrid of the stubborn perseverance of Hashemite ideology and the violent tendencies displayed by the rebels in Basra. They'll prove to be a sole successor of that ruthless movement in many ways to the detriment of the entire Ummah. The story drain of Al-Mu'tadid lasted from 892 to 902, and he was only in his early 40s when he passed away. While Al-Tabari refrains from commenting on what happened, Al-Mas'udi is quick to allege poison, but he points the finger at two unlikely figures, a prisoner and a concubine, before adding that he heard other theories besides. His colorful history says that when the doctor tried to treat Al-Mu'tadud, the savage Caliph kicked him to death for his trouble. Although his passing seems to have been sudden, Al-Mu'tadid had already made adequate preparations. And next time, we'll cover the transition to, and reign of, his successor. Here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.